Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. If you were listening to some of those announcements that Ben was providing and you were like, I actually didn't know any of this stuff was happening, you may want to fill out the Connect card that's in the seat back pocket in front of you. Uh, we put that there so that you can fill it out, connect with all the different things that we're doing, both the, during this special week of leading up to Easter, as well as all the other things that we're doing. So fill that out. And while you're doing that, I want to remind you of one other thing, and that's the banquet. As the student minister here, I work with students. It's a privilege. And one of the ways that we fund all the different things that we're doing is through the banquet. It's both silent auction and meal together. It's on Cinco de Mayo, and so we're having this fun theme. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, but it's getting closer and closer. So if you have not purchased your tickets, now's the time to do so. There will be a table out in the lobby with some of the different items that you're going to be able to bid on. Take a look at that. Sign up for your tickets. You can do it online or at the table. We'll get you set up. And if you're someone that's thinking, I want to donate something to the banquet or I want to provide some sort of donation for a scholarship or something, now's the time to do that. You can do all that at the table. Now, a few weeks ago, I came up here with a blue sombrero hat. You may remember that. And I mentioned, as I was giving that announcement, that that was not my hat. That's Rob Jankowski's hat, the lead minister here. And you may have said, Ryan, that you're just poking fun at Rob. Actually, I'm not. Um, I was able to get, get a picture of him this past week with his hat on, <laughs> with his best friend, Clark Kent, apparently. <laughs> Rob wants you to be there. I want you to be there. It really is going to be a fun time. Now, as we get into our text this morning, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, get your Bible out. Yeah, you can get your Bible app, that's fine, but get your Bible out. We're going to be in there dissecting it. I want to make sure we see it. Anytime I work with students, I want them to have a real Bible in their hands, so I'm going to have the same expectation for you this morning. If you've got one, bring it out. It's going to be important uh, as we go through this morning. And as you're doing that, you may see that the text we're looking at is the transfiguration, this mountaintop experience. And as I was thinking about that, I was trying to think, Ryan, how many mountaintop experiences have you had? And I'm not talking emotional mountaintop experiences. I'm not talking about spiritual mountaintop experiences. I'm talking about, I was, you're actually physically on the top of a mountain. Everything else is below you. And I have two of these. And I'll tell you about them. Now, most mountaintop experiences are these special, uh, unique, you don't ever forget them, beautiful experiences. Neither of mine were completely that, and let me explain. The first one, I didn't even hike up the mountain. I drove up the mountain. If you've been to Colorado, you're familiar with Mount Evans, and you can drive up this 14,000-foot peak, and you get this beautiful vista of all the mountains and everything that's going on in, in Colorado. I was with my wife's family. It was a lot of fun being able to, to go up there and anticipating the, spending this special moment on top of this mountain with my wife, Catherine. The problem was she was trying not to throw up in the back of the vehicle the entire time we're driving up. <laughs> the entire time. And so we get to the top. She doesn't even get out of the car. It's just me on top of this mountain. You're like, I thought this was going to be special and unique. <laughs> of course, now, side note, coming down the mountain and actually coming out of the mountains of Colorado, we were halfway across Nebraska before we figured out that, in fact, it wasn't altitude sickness at all. It was actually morning sickness, that she was pregnant with her first child, which I guess that's special and unique in and of itself. Uh, that's another thing about these mountaintop experiences. You don't always understand what's happening at the top of the mountain. You have to almost come down before you can fully experience and understand what you experience. Uh, the second mountaintop uh, experience that I had was with Don and Jody Lamb. We somehow were able to connect with them 
uh, climbing a, we did climb this one because it took us forever, 13,000 foot peak that had a beautiful view of this 14,000 foot peak called Holy Cross. There's this rock formation and the way the snow melts, it actually forms a cross at the top. And so you're like, okay, this is going to be the mountaintop experience that I've been wanting. And we made it. We, in this case, we had Conrad. I was wearing a, a front carrier with him. We get to the top. There's, it's all rocks because we're past the tree line. And when we get up there, again, you're expecting this special, unique, beautiful view. While everyone else is experiencing that, I peel Conrad out of the front carrier and realize that he has had the biggest blowout of his life. <laughs> There's no one to save us. And there is debris everywhere. So we're trying to get it out of off his back, out of his hair. And so again, the mountaintop experience, what in the world is going on? Those are my two mountaintop experiences. And maybe you've had hopefully better mountaintop experiences if you've ever actually been on top of a mountain. But they are special, unique opportunities where we, you, don't, you just connect with God in a special way and you don't quite understand what, you're, what you've seen and experienced until you come down. And that's what we see here in this transfiguration account. But this is not the first mountaintop experience that we read about in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is full of them, full of them. Think about these. Genesis 22, Abraham sacrifices his son Isaac on the top of a mountain or goes to do that. Or Exodus 3, Moses and the burning bush. Talk about a unique and special connection with God. He's never the same after that. Or Exodus 20, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and receives the law. Again, this unique experience with God. I think about Elijah on Mount Carmel, this dramatic display of God's power as he's uh, going against the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. And that they're not all Old Testament references. We see that Jesus goes on top of a mountain frequently. In fact, during the last week of his life, he takes the disciples up to the Mount of Olives. And both he and the disciples are different when they come down. Things have definitely changed. See, much like my personal mountaintop experiences, maybe yours, these men didn't get the full picture of who God is and what's going on until after they came down the mountain, but they were never the same. I mean, think about Abraham. Think about Moses. They were not the same after they encountered God with these special moments with him. And so I think these biblical accounts of mountaintop experiences will help us understand what's going on in the transfiguration account. In fact, they give us signposts, two main signposts to be able to filter this, to be able to put on the right set of glasses to see Jesus the way he wants to be seen. Now, remember, the definition of a signpost is something that acts as guidance or a clue to an unclear or complicated issue. Now, if you've read the Transfiguration account before, you know that this is, it can be difficult to understand what exactly is going on. Jesus climbs a mountain, he lights up, and all of a sudden he goes back down, and is it really that important? Why does he choose to do it now with the disciples? What is exactly going on? And so as we look back at some of these other mountaintop experiences from Abraham, Moses, Elijah... They will help us understand what's going on here, specifically in two ways. We have to keep these in mind as we go through this morning. Number one, mountaintop experiences in the Bible lead us to an enhanced sense of worship, an intense connection to God's presence. Every single one of these accounts, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, it's, it's all about worship and connecting with God's presence. And it also is this, number two, God doesn't give us mountaintop experiences, whether they be physical or emotional, or spiritual, just for us. He gives them to us, yes, so that we can see him differently, know him intimately, but it's to also help others do the same. And Jesus, as he is taking the disciples up, some of the disciples up on this mountain, these are the things that he is wanting to foster. Worship, connection to his presence, and the desire to want to help others 
bring them into that situation as well. So with those signposts in mind, let's jump into our text this morning. If you've got your Bible, Mark 9, starting in verse 2, let me read it. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he was Peter, and he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, there's a lot going on in these verses. So what I want to do with those signposts in mind is to walk through each one of these verses one by one. In verse 2, it says this, And after six days, after six days, what is going on here? Well, remember, the transfiguration is not something that just pops out of history. It's actually connected into everything that Mark is trying to do as he's putting his gospel together. And as Rob mentioned last week, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Mark is doing something specific. He is taking some things out of chronological order, rearranging them to emphasize a specific spiritual theme. And that's the idea of seeing. Specifically, who do you see Jesus to be? Do you see him clearly? And Mark does that by emphasizing a healing account in chapter 8, when Jesus has to, he encounters this blind man and has to touch the man twice. Remember Rob talking about this last week? Why did Jesus have to touch him twice? Well, it had nothing to do with his power. Jesus can heal without even touching. But why does he have to touch him twice? And we realize that it's really all about the fact that this healing is more like a parable explaining the lives of the disciples. They need a second touch because they don't see him clearly. And in chapter 8, there's a question that's asked. The question is, what do you see? What do you see? And there's a second question asked later on in chapter 8. And Mark's gospel, where Jesus then takes the disciples away to Caesarea Philippi and begins to have this conversation where he's asking them, what are other people saying about me? And Jesus phrases this question, who do you say that I am? What am I to, to you? What is Jesus to you? And what Mark is doing in that, this section of scripture is he's taking those two questions and framing the entire thematic element. In fact, the transfiguration itself will answer both of those questions. But the way that Mark is doing this, the way he's constructing this, allows us to slip in to the story where Jesus is essentially asking us those same two questions. What do you see, Ryan? When you look at me, what do you see? Who do you say that I am? And it's almost, though, that as I enter into the story, I'm much like Peter, where I want to begin to answer that question. And Jesus is saying, no, no, don't answer that yet, because you don't really understand, and you want to talk a lot, and you think you know what I'm supposed to be about and where I'm going. But no, Peter, no, Ryan, just quiet yourself down, and let me show you. And that's what we see here when, in this transfiguration account. Now, you also may be asking, what's the mountain? Like, where, where are we exactly? Well, it's most likely Mount Hermon. It's the tallest mountain around. It's roughly 9,200 feet in elevation, which means as Peter, James, and John go with Jesus, they've got a long way to climb up this mountain. Okay, that's, that's going to take you a little while. So there's lots of time to pray. The, the text tells us that they're getting away to pray, but a lot of time to think and try to figure out what exactly is going on. You also may be asking, why just Peter, James, and John? Why them? If this is supposed to be such a special connection with Jesus, then why doesn't he take all of the disciples? 
Well, if you've read your Bible, you know that Jesus has this inner circle, and you may think, well, maybe these guys are more spiritually mature, but remember, Peter is not. He's got a lot of things to work on, and so it's not so much that. Maybe their later ministry will allow them to reference this time and this experience and, and leverage it for the kingdom. And I think if you look at the New Testament later on, you'll see that these disciples don't want to stop talking about this moment. It is influential, though they don't necessarily what's, know what's going on while they're up there. But I think it's important to understand this, that mountaintop experiences aren't every moment, they're not every experience, and they're not always meant for you. Sometimes they are. Sometimes God leads you to the mountaintop and he wants to connect with you in a unique and special way. But there are times where he leaves you at the bottom of the mountain. Other people get to go up the mountain and see something that you don't get to see, but you are asked to stay faithful in the everyday coming and goings of what God's asked you to do. So either way, whether we're on top of the mountain or whether we're staying at the base, we're asked to be faithful and to stay connected, to follow closely to him. Moving on in verse 2 and 3. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use the word transfigured uh, every day in my normal vocabulary. So you may wonder, what exactly does that word mean? Well, it's similar to the word metamorphosis, and that may be a word that you're familiar with. And the idea behind this is something changes into something completely different. What, was, what it started as is not even close to what it is now. When I think of that, I think of my four-year-old son, Conrad, who's in preschool, and his teacher has an activity where they will come in and they have a butterfly egg. And after, of course, and that's like the lamest project the entire year, I'm sure, from Conrad's perspective. There's just an egg sitting there. But a few days later, they'll start to see a caterpillar crawling. I'll get to talk about that. A few days later, all of a sudden, there's this chrysalis thing. And they're all like, bummer, I thought we were going somewhere. What's going on? I like the caterpillar, but nothing. And then a few days later, what do we see? A butterfly. Think of how different the egg is just sitting there compared to the butterfly that is able to go wherever it wants and gets the experience and the blessing of flight. That's what's happening here. This, that's the kind of metamorphosis we're talking about with Jesus. From the disciples' perspective, he is a man. He eats, walks, he's normal. He's very earth, earthy to them. But yet, at this moment... The God-man of Jesus sets aside his earthly nature, takes up his eternal nature, and that's all the disciples can see. There's no earthly thing about him when Jesus is on top of this mountain. There's nothing earthly about him. That's why when the disciples are trying to describe it and write it down, they're having to talk about laundry. He's like, why, do they, why are they comparing it to laundry? Well, think about how dirty your laundry gets in first century Palestine, all the, the stain and soil, everything earthy that makes it dark and dirty. Well, when they look at this, there's nothing, there's no stain, there's no soil. So as they're trying to describe this to the other disciples, they're like, listen, I don't know what to use, what metaphor to use, but it's like dirty laundry becoming clean. There's no earthly thing about him. He was so bright. I, I don't know what to say. He's bigger than anything we can possibly understand with our human brain looking at the eternal sun. Moving on to verse 4. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Notice who Jesus is speaking with. Elijah and Moses. Who are these guys, and why do they all of a sudden show up? Well, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know these are prominent characters that, in fact, as we mentioned earlier, had their own mountaintop experience with God. And if you know from a Jewish perspective, they referred to their Bible, what we would call our Old Testament, as the Law and the Prophets. The law and the prophets. Well, think about who was the greatest lawgiver? Who went up on the mountain and experienced a special time with God and brought down the mountain? 
That was Moses. And what, what prophet had his own mountaintop experience and defeated the 450 prophets of Baal? That was Elijah. You have the two prominent people in the Old Testament, the greatest lawgiver, most likely the greatest prophet, all of a sudden standing in God's or in Jesus' presence. And this is, not, this is not something that would be missed on the disciples. These are heroes to them. And they see, hold on, Jesus is superior to Moses and Elijah, the two guys that we thought were most important. Jesus is speaking with them, facilitating this conversation. It's not, there's nothing distinct between the Old Testament and the New. It's almost so Jesus is superior, but he's continuing everything that's been happening in the Old and New. As though everything that Moses and Elijah were talking about actually was leading itself to Jesus. In fact, it finds its culmination in him. Jesus is bigger than that. And notice that they're speaking. Notice that they're speaking. The conversation that they are having with Jesus here is in fact the same conversation that you will have when your time on earth is done and you meet him. Can you imagine what that conversation would be like? In fact, it's not really that different than the conversation that you get to have with your heavenly father aided by the Holy Spirit even now. Do you have that sort of conversation with him? Verses 5 and 6, moving on. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For Peter always had something to say, but in this case, he didn't know what to say, and he was scared out of his mind, okay? Emphasis mine on that. Aren't we grateful that Peter is in the Bible? Because we can see ourselves in the Bible. He is in God's presence, in, but he messes it up time and time again. How good it is for him to be there. And he is somewhat of a Captain Obvious here. Rabbi, it's good we're here. This is so good. Let me do something with this. And you may ask, why, why three tents? What's he trying to do? Trying to make three tents or three tabernacles? And yes, he's trying to memorialize this event. He Remember, his understanding of God's kingdom is, is different. He thinks it's culminating now, like Jesus is coming and it's going to be a physical kingdom and it's all going to happen right now and he wants to set this up. He's thinking that Old Testament prophecy is going to be fulfilled, but remember, he's just a human interacting with an eternal God. Uh, he's finite. He doesn't quite understand. We can give him some grace there. But there is something that I think is a little bit more insidious that we need to make sure we're aware of. And that's the feeling, that's the idea that Peter needed to make something of this experience. He had, felt like he had to do something with this experience. And this isn't the first time. If you've studied the life of Peter, you know that he is always putting his foot in his mouth, always has something to say. He's impetuous. He's rash. He wants to do something. And we see it a lot even in the last uh, week of Jesus' life. Remember when Jesus is up in the upper room and wants to wash their feet, the disciples' feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter's like, no, no, don't wash my feet. Jesus, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, actually, I do. I really do need to wash your feet. And what does Peter say? Well, then, Jesus, give me a whole bath. Wash my whole entire body. Go ahead. Peter, that's not what it's, that's not what it's about. Of course, who says that he's not going to deny Jesus? That's Peter. Who cuts off the ear of the servant when, when Jesus is arrested? That's Peter. Peter wants to make something of the experience here. And he's not so different than us, is he? Why do we try to do that? Why do we try to make something of the experience? Why, why can't we just experience the experience? When we come into God's presence, why can't that be enough? Like the song we just sang a moment ago, why can't we just fall at our feet and his presence be enough for us? See, some things aren't meant to be analyzed, photographed, captured, tweeted, posted, or shared. Some experiences aren't meant for that. 
It's meant just between you and God. Don't miss the experience. I think of this. Anyone ever been to a 4th of July celebration where there are fireworks? If you think about it, I mean, these are special things. Your kids, it's almost it's a blessing to be able to see your kids experience this for the first time because you have a black night sky full of all different kinds of designs and colors. It really is amazing. But the next time you go to a 4th of July celebration, the next time you see a fireworks display, as soon as the first firework goes off, you know what else you're going to see go up in the air? Bones. Everybody's doing this. What in the world are we doing? How in the world are we going to capture everything that is going on in the night sky through the viewfinder, the lens of my cell phone? Is that what we try to do with God? We try to compartmentalize him? Do we not realize that God has given us a brain and a heart and a mind to experience him in unique and special ways? But we miss it because we are too busy trying to capture it and make it something that we can then make tangible and material and give off to somebody else. Sometimes it's just for you, and it's not something to be captured. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Don't miss this. This is one of the three times that God the Father speaks to God the Son. We see it at Jesus' baptism. We see it in the Gospel of John, and we see it here. And what does God say? This is my beloved son. Remember those two questions from chapter 8? What do you see, and who do you say that I am? God the Father is specifically answering that second question. Jesus is asking the disciples in chapter 8, who, who do you say that I am? During this transfiguration account, God says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. And notice, too, that God is giving them the instruction that they need to hear the most. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We also see, I mean, think about Jesus being, dropping his, his earthly nature and picking up his, his eternal nature. Remember that first question from chapter 8? What do you see? Jesus is saying, this is what you need to be seeing. This is who I am. The transfiguration answers both of these questions from chapter 8. And Mark isn't being trivial with this. He's doing it for our benefit. Now, one thing you don't see in Mark's gospel is the significance of the timing of what's being said. See, in Matthew's account, we read that while Peter was still speaking about the tabernacles, he's, he's trying to set this up, figure this out. We need to put one here, one here, one here. We'll get... And all of a sudden, God starts speaking. Literally, is, is Mark, or is, Mark is telling us that as Peter is... Talking about the tabernacles, God talks right over him. God doesn't wait for Peter to stop talking. God just shows up and starts speaking as though he's saying in a not-so-subtle way for Peter, who needs it, just like we do, would you stop talking and listen to me for just one moment? Listen to my son. I don't care what he has said to you in the past. I don't care how difficult it is for you to understand. I don't care what your expectations of him are. Would you just listen to him? Stop hearing him. Start listening to him. How many times have we missed our mountaintop moment with God because we are too busy talking? We're too busy texting. Or let's just drop, let's just say we're just too busy. How frequently is, how many times do we miss God's presence? And that could be in this very room right now where we have, yeah, we're sitting here, but we have not turned off our mind, our, our mind and thought and heart are all different kinds of places. When we come to worship him, we submit our mind and our heart and we give it to him. We give it to him. When I think of Peter and the fact that he had something to say and just goes on and on and on, my mind goes to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, which says this, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, we are on earth, 
Therefore, let our words be few. Maybe we should stop talking and start listening. And verse 8 says this. We'll finish with this. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. They've experienced all this. The next thing they know, all they see, all their experience is them and Jesus. Isn't that what we want our, the story of our lives to be? Just Jesus and me. Just Jesus in you. When people talk about you, when they see you, yeah, you've done some things, yeah, you've been some places, but you want them to describe you as just, just me and Jesus, just you and Jesus. They no longer saw anyone but Jesus. They witnessed something that changed their view of Jesus forever. Maybe that's what this week will be for you. What they saw, they could not stop talking about. Maybe for the very first time, they saw Jesus as he truly was. See, the transfiguration is when the glory of God became manifest in the person of Jesus. Have we forgotten that? When we get to come into his presence, do we realize this is the glory of God in a relationship with a person? Remember those two questions. How do, how do you see Jesus? What do you see? Who is Jesus to you? See, I think those are especially applicable questions for us as we contemplate Palm Sunday, which is really the beginning of an entire week of mountaintop experiences. Remember what takes place? We read it just a minute ago. Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, and all the people are yelling, shouting to him, Hosanna, giving him praise, kneeling, putting their coats before him, allowing him to come into the city in this very festive way as they prepare for Passover. And yet later in the week, those same people are yelling, crucify him. Do you see your story in that? That is our story, isn't it? We're just like the blind man in chapter 8. We need a second touch. We need Jesus to clarify our perspective, to allow us to, to see him for who he really is. See, as we enter into Holy Week, we can't be satisfied with capturing the experience. This week can't be all about hearing about him. It can't just be a lot of talking, but we really need to slow down, stop, and listen. And we really want, as Jesus wants, to see him for who he really is. Who is Jesus really? And Scripture says... Scripture says in Isaiah 53 exactly what Jesus wants to be seen as, specifically this week. So I'm going to read this to finish. It's not going to be on the screens because I want you to listen. I want you to listen to this. You may want to close your eyes. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. That's us a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom we hide our faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for touching us. Thank you for allowing us to come into your presence. Father, we want those mountaintop experiences. We want more than anything else to be in your presence. And whether you take us there or you lead us through a valley, help us to just stay close to you and to be satisfied in you alone. Help us to lay our heart and minds down and to quiet ourselves in your love so that we can see you for who you want to be 
seen as and who you really are. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.